Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Schiller. I've been taking a uh, little tiny break from the show the past couple of weeks, as you can see. Travel, I don't know, other reasons. Sometimes you just need a holiday. <laughs> but I wanted to keep momentum up. And so what I'm actually going to do for the next couple of weeks before I get back on track with things is something of a um, something from the archives, shall we say. So for this first archive show, I'm actually going to reproduce an interview that I did last year with Sinclair Target of 2-Bit History. This was um, this was for the new podcast I attempted to start called The Enthusiastic Amateur, which, to be blunt, I was very busy at the time and trying to launch a new podcast in the middle of being very busy was not a good idea and it didn't really go anywhere. But I did uh, a couple of really good interviews that never really got the audience uh, listenerships that they deserved. So um, I'm going to reproduce two of those interviews over the next couple of weeks first and then we'll see where we go from there. So I'm just leaving the show after this intro in its sort of edited entirety. So there's going to be some different music and different production values and things like that that maybe sound a little different from the usual weekly squeak. But uh, I hope you enjoy and I'll talk to you again soon. This is the Enthusiastic Amateur Podcast, a show about people and their passions. Welcome to The Enthusiastic Amateur, a new show from me, Christian Chiller. In The Enthusiastic Amateur, I talk to two different groups of people. I either talk to people who are professionally enthusiastic about a subject and want to get you enthusiastic about that subject too, or I speak to people who are enthusiastic about a subject and working on that subject in their spare time, but also want you to be enthusiastic too. So it's all about spreading enthusiasm and passion. For this first episode, our topic is the history of computing, and my guest is Sinclair. Now, we were discussing this before the show, but I'm still going to possibly get it wrong. Sinclair Target. That is entirely correct. But if you're American, you may just go say Target. <laughs> yep. Or actually English or Australian. There is a, a shop in America and Australia called Target. So, But um, being currently based in Europe, I thought I should double check. I don't know how familiar you are with British computing, but you have a very appropriate name for the blog as well. Uh, that's true. I, I was just uh, last week in San Francisco and I went to the Computer History Museum and I saw that they had a couple of uh, Sinclair computers, so that was exciting. They were not very well made. They looked flimsy. Oh, they, they were, definitely. Uh, and you have a blog with um, a couple of dozen stories, usually more long-form uh, blog posts covering a variety of topics of uh, stories behind key moments in computing history. And, and these vary from some very old ones to some more recent. So let's start with um, just what prompted you to create the blog in the first place and what itch were you trying to scratch when you did that? I think that's a good way to frame it. I think it really was an itch or, or a compulsion. I, I really enjoy writing and I enjoy the opportunity to write for an audience. So I think the blog was really really kind of a, a vanity project, a way for me to have an opportunity to write something and then put it in front of people. And I think I decided to do the history of computing in particular because that was just a topic that I thought was very interesting. And, and I noticed that there didn't seem to be a huge amount of writing out there about it. There's a lot of writing out there about um, 
the corporate, you know, the history of, of different corporations within the technology sector. So there are endless books about, you know, Steve Jobs and Apple and all these other companies. Um, but there isn't a lot, I mean, very simple questions that you might ask yourself as a software engineer. And, and I was asking myself these questions. I mean, where did the JSON format come from? Why do all the top level directories on my computer have all these strange abbreviated names? I mean, what is the history of those names? Why, why is it USR for user instead of just, you know, the word user, it's one extra letter. You would have thought that would be okay. But, uh, you know, all these interesting questions about why things are the way they are. And those are really historical questions. So I wanted to dive into that from a historical, uh, sorry, from the, the technical side of it. And I guess some of the topics you cover, like there's a few topics here which people have certainly covered before, I think, or I hope, like the story of Ada Lovelace, which we will talk about in a, in a bit more detail. Um, but some other things, like uh, I know one of the, the, the posts that uh, brought me to your blog in the first place was the, the one about RSS, um, which I know tech journalists especially wax lyrical about, but um, without ever really knowing exactly yeah why it was created the way it was created and, and interestingly i learned from from that post <laughs> i i do some tech writing work uh, documentation work and things like that and i work for a company that has a product that is largely based on atom feeds and i had forgotten that atom feeds and rss come from the same origin um i did know it i just forgotten about it so it, you reminded me of that fact. <laughs> yeah, it seems like people forget about things very quickly in the in the computing world. So, yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to speak to you, and we we started touching on this very quickly before we started recording. Your name is is Sinclair, which um, was I'm pretty sure the company doesn't exist anymore. Uh, a computer company in the UK in the ooh, was it the 80s and 90s, I guess, named after its founder, Clive Sinclair. Um, and there's this film put out by uh, Channel 4, one of the TV channels in the UK, called the something like, uh, I should have looked up the exact title, but something like The Battle of the Micromen. Um, and it's about the battle, in quote marks, between Sinclair and Acorn, who are another British computer company, uh, for the BBC contract, for the BBC Micro which in that period of time in the UK was a big deal. The BBC funded this computer program to bring um, educational computers into schools. And I'm just about old enough that I did use those computers. Uh, and the interesting thing about this story was that Sinclair was a successful company at the time. Um, and Acorn was kind of the, the plucky underdog that wanted to do things right. But uh, because of that, you know, they weren't as successful. But in the long run, Acorn ended up being far more lucrative because Acorn became ARM and ARM is now everywhere, whereas Sinclair is pretty much dead. So <laughs> and that's kind of what interested me about computing history, these sort of things where it doesn't always turn out the way you expect, I guess, in the long run. Right. And Acorn ended up with the contract for the BBC in the end, right? I think they... I honestly can't even remember now. I think they did. You're stealing my thunder a little bit because I'm thinking about writing about the BBC Micro. Oh, I think I think for, you can. 
<laughs> yeah, an upcoming post. But yeah, I think I think Acorn went ahead and they were the ones who, who put out the BBC Micro. But yeah, I'm sure that would have been a huge win because I understand it was a very popular computer around the uh, United Kingdom. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I mean, it was popular in that people remember it, but because it was to schools, I don't know how many they sold. I don't know. Right. It's sort of, it's sort of interesting like that. Um, whereas Sinclair was in people's homes. Um, right. And I mean, if you ever picked one up, which you have and I have, they're very, very poorly made. They have those horrible chiclet keyboards, um, which, uh, you know, you basically got on cheap calculators and things like that. Uh, yeah. But the I think the story of Acorn is a fascinating story in itself anyway. So <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, because... Yeah, now the company that came out of them is is in a lot of devices uh, and uh, actually feeding into that before we go off at too much of a tangent, uh, for ages I've been keeping a, a very close eye on SoftBank, the Japanese investment company, because they invest in all these strange esoteric big projects um, like uh, robotic systems and Uber and mm-hmm. uh, virtual reality operating systems and then ARM. And everyone worries about companies like Facebook and Google. And I'm thinking, no, you should really worry about SoftBank. And Wired recently just published an article on them, which I look forward to reading to see if they agree. <laughs> you know, oh, that's fascinating. Putting all this money into, uh, into all these far-flung places and lots of money too. Right. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's, that's into the modern world. Let's, let's go back <laughs> a few decades again. So, so far, yeah, I think you've covered um, a dozen or sort of two dozen stories. Um, what has been your favorite so far? I would say my favorite so far, I've really enjoyed the stories that have a bit of a, a political edge. And it's funny because I set out to write history and you discover very quickly that a lot of history does, you do end up writing about political things and the, the politics creeps in a little bit, even if you don't set out to write about it in the first place. Um, but one, one article I wrote, which I really enjoyed writing about was my article about the semantic web. So in the, the early two thousands, uh, Tim Berners-Lee and some other people really thought that they were going to, you know, Tim Berners-Lee came out, he built the web. That was very successful. It was a open protocol. Everybody could use it. And, uh, it was this wonderful thing. And then he thought, you know, you could, build upon it and you have a sort of, I think he might've called it at some point web 3.0, but the idea that you have a whole nother set of protocols on top of the web that just make the web smarter and, and machines will be able to understand more about the web. It won't just be unstructured text. It'll be more structured and more powerful uh, for it. And there's this great dream of, of building that in an open way uh, using all these standards. So it would be public the same way that all the standards that, uh, built the original web were and it was this amazing vision and it was just very interesting because it seemed to fall almost entirely flat on its face it really went nowhere uh, and all these standards were put out but nobody really uses them anymore so it's this very interesting story a bit like the story about rss i mean there are very similar themes here but these grand visions of what the web could be like and today we have a web that looks nothing like that everything almost i don't know It'd be interesting to see the statistics on this, but it seems like you know half the content of the web today, at least, is in Facebook or in Twitter. That's where people publish, mm. and it's not 
public and based on standards the way that uh, Tim Berners-Lee thought it was. So that was a very interesting story about, you know, why didn't that come to fruition? And, and that's where you get the politics. I mean, is it really maybe there's there are technical shortcomings to these standards? But I think the real answer is that just the web moved away because you had these large corporations move in and they're able to set up these platforms that monopolized a lot of the communication on the web. I actually, because I think about this time, so you're talking about the early to mid 2000s, I was working a lot in content management systems. And I do remember a lot of these terms like RDF schema, Mm -hmm. OWL, and I'm also just remembering um, Glam, which trying to look up Glam on a search engine to remember what an acronym stands for. <laughs> difficult. So, <laughs> that's uh, a new one. Remember, that's a new one for me. I've never. Yeah, heard I remember it being somewhat related to the kind of arts and museum sector. Uh, another sort of uh, form of ontologies for content, and I guess uh, some of the reasons with Tim Berners Lee came from academia, right? Um, so classifying things is always a, a big desire, whereas that's not necessarily what the general user wants to do. Absolutely. Um, I think the biggest, the people who are most excited about these standards were probably librarians. Yeah. Why do you think it failed? I mean, what's, what, what did you pick up from the story that you, that you, why you think it failed? Well, there's um, a man out there, Corey Doctoro, who yep. is famous for all sorts of things. Uh, but he was involved in, in some of the debates in the early 2000s about whether this was all a good idea. And he wrote a very influential essay where he basically argued that the whole idea was a little bit flawed. And his his real point was that you were relying on people out there on the internet just to add all this metadata to their content. So if you're going to have this semantic web, you have to structure your information. And that means somebody who's only interested in putting out a bunch of text now has to take on the additional responsibility of structuring their information according to all these standards. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you've ever tried to go understand what exactly RDF schema is, I mean, I think I understood it for about five minutes as I was writing that article. <laughs> I definitely don't understand it anymore. So it was, it's, it's just a very complicated thing. And it's part of the problem is that it's a very, all these standards are very general purpose. So they're mm. extremely abstract and it's very hard to understand um, how you're supposed to apply them to, you know, any piece of content that you put out yourself. So I think the huge shortcoming was that there are some expectation that people would would do all this stuff for their content um, because the semantic web would be so great. But I think it was almost a chicken and a, chicken or chicken and an egg problem because you needed these people to do this markup on their content in order to make the semantic web happen. But until there was a semantic web, there was really no incentive for people to do it. Hmm. And. I think this is another one of these classic stories that the history of computing, indeed the history of technology is littered with, where the the better standard, in quote marks, especially from the engineer's perspective, doesn't always end up winning. Uh, and its legacy has is still with us, but in different ways. Um, so some forms of JSON standards, which, you know, JSON has its problems, but it's very simple and straightforward and and kind of easy for people to use, which is crucial in any kind of uh, adoption of anything. And things like REST APIs, um, for anyone sort of non-technical listening, listening, a a standard way of um, communicating between applications that people will follow a pattern and a, a way of kind of requesting and responding 
for those requests for those information. So some of the ideas have continued with us, just not in the form that was proposed, I guess. Absolutely. And I think simplicity is really the key thing. I, I wrote another article, especially I think the very first article I wrote, which is about the history of JSON. And it's so amazing to, to see, I think if you go back and look at, there's not a huge amount of data available about this, but if you look, I think Stack Overflow does these surveys or, you know, there are these Google trend graphs and you can just look at how JSON took over from XML um, extremely quickly. And I think it's it's the same problem. I mean, XML was very much a foundational technology for the semantic web. You had all these different standards that were built on XML. And of course, XML is, is every programmer's least favorite format and it's just extremely <laughs> verbose, extremely complicated, whereas JSON is is just so much simpler in comparison. So I think simplicity is, is really a, a underrated feature when you're putting yeah. out these standards. And I think yeah. that was something that was overlooked uh, when it came to the semantic web. And this comes back again, of course, to the the history behind some of uh, the the applications and protocols that we use now. The origins of HTML, which is what Tim Berners Lee is responsible for, and the transfer protocol for it, not not the internet, as people sometimes right. say he's responsible for, um, came. Uh, its origins are in various other flavors of ML markup language that were used in desktop design and. Um, word processing and things like that they were all whilst we may look at these tags now and think what on earth is this they made perfect sense to people at the time because it was what they were used to so naturally you carry on using it and you expand it and expand it and expand it probably to a point where it's falling apart but (laughs) it's 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 where it's where its origin story was absolutely and that's something I get very excited about when it comes to the history of computing. If I can, you know, plug one of my major, major, um, what would you call it, a sort of a driving purpose beside, behind my uh, blog, other than just, you know, to to write for an audience. I think I think that's something that to write a history from a technical standpoint, or to you know read a history. I think that's a great way to get an understanding for why technologies today are the way they are. And so, for example, when I first started learning web development, I remember being so frustrated because I was just trying to build an app. And I just wanted that, I think they call it the the miracle layout. I forget what the term is, it, is for it now. But if you just wanted to set up an app, a web application that had you know a header, maybe a sidebar, um, a main content area. It's surprisingly difficult to do with CSS. I mean, now today we've got this new technology called Flexbox, which makes it much easier. But you know, when I was first learning web development, you didn't really have Flexbox support. So it was surprisingly difficult to lay out a web page so that it looks like an application. And so I found that so frustrating. But re- what really helps is if you go look at the history of web development, if you go and look at you know, what Tim Berners-Lee did in the very beginning, as you said, it, it grew out of all these markup languages. And so the original intent for all those technologies was to, you're creating a document and the web was really meant to share documents. So of course it's difficult to lay out an application because an application is not a document. I mean, you've got, for example, f- floats. I mean, you, you really think when you first start learning web development that if you want to have a sidebar that sticks to the left side of the screen and stays the same width as your content, you really should be using a float. But I mean, the real purpose of float in the beginning was just to have an image that is off to the side in a larger flow of text, like you see in a newspaper. So it's really, it's not what it was designed for originally. 
we, we were doing crazy things like using tables for layout and stuff like that back in the back in the the prehistoric days of web development. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I mean, it's it's much better now, thankfully. But I, I found yeah. that just knowing the history made it so much easier to understand what was going on, and it made me much less frustrated. Um, so I guess actually fusing fusing these two topics um, before we move on to kind of the next question, just because. I sort of see a, a maybe a connection here. Lots of people have talked about the death of RSS, which I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. I use it all the time. <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't mean it's not going to die. Um, and it is mostly an XML-based format, which is some of the reasons people dislike it these days. But also, I mean, the beauty of it is it's uncurated, which, um, well, it's not uncurated, but where a feed comes from is typically uncurated. Do you think there could be some kind of new RSS that was basically JSON but more user-friendly so anyone could just subscribe to it um, in, a, in a feed read like they do now? Or is that not, that not the reason RSS is, is, in quote marks, dying? Yeah, I think it's impossible to write an article about RSS and not <laughs> the title be RSS is dying. <laughs> uh, I, I wrote that story uh, and uh, it was a blog post first and then it got picked up by vice news their their tech website published yep. uh, that article yep. of mine and, and of course that they published it with this banner image which was you know a gravestone with, with the rss etched into it so that was a little bit worrying i mean people it's amazing you get a lot of whenever you publish something on the internet about how rss is dead a lot of people will come out of the woodwork yep. to correct you um so i think I remember reading one post somewhere where somebody made the point, and I think this was spot on. RSS is not really dead, but it's become invisible. It's become mm -hmm. the plumbing of the internet. Um, and so I think maybe you could make RSS more user-friendly, but now, I mean, it's surprisingly easy. I mean, I've got an RSS feed on my blog, and enabling that was extremely simple, and I didn't have to understand the format. I didn't have to deal with XML at all. So I'd say that there's almost no cost to adding an RSS feed to your website at the moment, um, particularly if you're using a tool, you know, a, a static site tool that somebody else has built for you. Um, so I don't know if, if making RSS simpler is, is really that important. <laughs> it's pretty simple, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty, if, pretty simple as it stands. Um, in fact, isn't that what it stands for? Now I'm trying to remember. Well, it, it stands for three different things at once. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but one, one of them is indeed really simple syndication. So it's yeah. supposed to be extremely simple. I didn't, I didn't set up that, uh, that pun intentionally. Though. I walked right. into that by chance. <laughs> um, and actually, uh, many people don't also realize as complex and as popular as podcasts have become in recent months, um, fundamentally, a podcast is an RSS feed containing audio. And despite many efforts to complicate that format, none of them have really have really happened yet. So actually, uh, RSS is being used a lot in in podcasts still, um, even if it's not being used as much for news feeds anymore. That's certainly where it's probably seeing an uptake in in usage again. Absolutely, and that's another invisible usage of RSS. I don't think I even wrote about it very much in my RSS article, so that was that was definitely a shortcoming. <laughs> uh, it's it's out there, it's being used, but it's it's hard to it's not very you know, visible or, or sexy. One thing I, I wonder if you've, you've picked up on this, like whilst it's fascinating for people like you and I to, to learn some of these stories, 
And actually, a lot of the time, it's not always technical stories. There's technical details you can dig into which appeal to to people who are into that. But there's also just a lot of the human story and the politics, which is equally as fascinating. And a TV show like Horton Catch Fire, I don't know if you've watched that, is is definitely in that vein. No, um, never. It's very good. There's three seasons of it. Um, so it's, you know, and it got then it finished. So there's no, you don't have to wade through like 12 seasons or something. I'll check but it out for very, sure. Yeah, definitely. It's very much focusing more on the the people side, um, and it and it's still quite uh, engaging from that. But I guess that the question would be: Is do you think we'll, we'll come to engineers later? But do you think that users of devices and technology need to know these stories? Should they know these stories? Do they benefit from knowing these stories? When I think about who my audience is for my blog, for example, I, I really. I aspire to have my stories be interesting and, and understandable to the, the average person who doesn't write software every day. But I, I think that's really only an aspiration. I'd say my, my target audience is people who are familiar with a lot of the technologies already. Um, and so I think some of the more technical stories aren't really interesting to people who don't build software. And, and so, some of those stories, I think, for example, the history of JSON, I think that's very difficult for somebody to care about if you don't use JSON or, or know what JSON is. And I'm not sure it's really that relevant to you, even if it would be very interesting to an engineer. Um, but I do think there are there broader implications of some of the history that could be relevant. So I think, for example, about I wrote another post, which is about the source history of the cat utility. Mm. which is a very popular utility for Unix uh, users. And it does something very simple. All it does is print the contents of a file to the screen, but it's been around for 30, 40 years. And what I discovered in that post is that the the actual source code for that program has not changed significantly in 30 or 40 years either. Mm. And so that's very interesting. I mean, for, for an engineer, it's exciting because here's this utility that you use on a regular basis, and it's fun to discover that it's it's so old. But even for somebody who doesn't use that program ever, and it's not the kind of program you'd ever use unless you were writing software uh, or if you're some sort of power user, even if you're just a regular user, I think it's very interesting to know that there's this program which has been essentially unchanged in 40 years, which still works on your computer. I think it tells you something about software. And I think it's counterintuitive. People think that everything on their computer was invented yesterday. And, and there's this narrative around tech, which is you know everything is new and exciting. But I think it's interesting for somebody, um, even someone unfamiliar with CAT, to just discover that software can be extremely old. One that uh, has always interested me, I mean, it highlights my own personal area of nerdery. I've been a Mac user most of my life since the mid-90s. I remember the old Mac OS and then the transition to Mac OS X, Mac OS, mm-hmm. OS X, whatever you want to call it. And... That has now been around for 15, 16 years in consumer land. And yet probably only in the last year or so has Apple finally removed all the references to the next OS, and uh, especially in the programming languages that you use on on Apple platforms, the um, NS namespacing, which is next step. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when I, I, I did a little bit of iOS years. development when I was in college, and I remember yeah. you there's this practice in that programming language, Objective-C, to prefix everything with the two letters. Yeah. Uh, and so you get all these class names that have the prefix NS, and 
it makes no sense unless you know the history. Yeah, and to most modern Apple users, they wouldn't know that history. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, anyway, uh, you could read about that story definitely in many, many books, as you already alluded to in Histories of Apple and Steve Jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Which story surprised you the most so far? It's difficult to predict how a story will be received by other people on the internet. And it's, I think that's usually what surprises me. I mean, it's sometimes you find that the story that you've worked quite hard on, you think is really interesting and then you get some, some, some response, but maybe not as much as you're hoping that's happened to me a few times. But then often you find that a story you write, which you thought was maybe not that interesting um, suddenly blows up. And so the, the story that really surprised me in terms of the response it got was my story about Ada Lovelace. And I have a memory of sitting down in a cafe around the corner from my apartment and working on that blog post. And it was getting long and I was, I, I set these due dates for myself, which I don't do a very good job of keeping to, but I, I was sort of coming up with my due date for the blog post and I just really wanted to get it done. And so I remember sitting in that cafe, getting through the last paragraphs and just thinking to myself, oh, this is, this is really terrible, but I just have to bang it out and move on to the next thing. And then I put it up and it gets a, a huge response. And I think people, that story about Ada Lovelace is an extremely interesting story. And I think it resonates for a lot of people. So I think that was a big part of it. Um, so I think, yeah, people, there was this political angle there. There was that gender angle. And somehow that was a, a successful mix. And it was particularly popular on Twitter. So a lot of my stories get um, out to an audience through news aggregators like Hacker News, which is where a lot of you know engineers hang out on the internet. Um, but that story, the Ada Lovelace one, was especially popular on Twitter. So I, I find it very hard to predict which stories will do well, but um, that one was a pleasant surprise. I, I, I would say it probably doesn't surprise me um, so much. Uh, there's certainly a lot of rediscovery of women's um, influence on computing recently. Right. Um, but... I guess, uh, was there anything particularly in the story that surprised you? I mean, we're going back uh, a fair way in history, of course, so I guess some of the sources are harder to find and you can't, you can't speak to people who were there, etc. But um, was there anything in particular in the story that surprised you? Yeah, there are a couple of things. Uh, so I went back and I read uh, Ada Lovelace's paper, and that was a very interesting exercise. It was essentially a computer science paper written in Victorian English. So it was a difficult, <laughs> a difficult read, uh, but immensely enjoyable. Uh, so that was, it was, it was fun to go back and just get a sense of her, her style. And it was interesting. I, the, the motivation for that article was really, I, I understood generally that she had written a program, but I was very curious about what does it mean to have written a program hmm. in the 19th century? What does it even look like? How do you write it down? And so I went back and discovered that. And essentially, it just looks like a table is the way that she wrote it out. And so that was that was fun. I, I'm not sure what I was expecting there, but I wasn't expecting a table. So that was interesting. But then the real surprise for that, that post was I decided that I would take her table and translate it into something that people would find more familiar. So I wrote a C program, uh, which was basically just her program pulled from the table line by line or you know row by row and translated into a C program. And so... The C program, I mean, the syntax is all C, so that's recognizable. Um, 
but it does look a little bit alien since it's a line-by-line -line translation of her program. But the fun thing about it was that I, I tried to run it on my computer and I kept getting the wrong output. And so for 10 minutes or so, I was certain that there must have been a problem with my program. I must have you know, mistranslated something. Uh, and after 10 minutes of banging my head against the table, I eventually realized that there was a division, which was the wrong way around in my program. And I thought, oh, that's, that's really stupid. How could you have done that? And then I went back to the table and I realized that the division was also the wrong way around in the original table. So that was a really exciting moment because suddenly it dawned on me. I mean, it's as magical as I was wrestling with ten, for 10 minutes with this bug, which was 200 years old. And it's surely, <laughs> you know, if she wrote the first program, then surely this is the first ever computer bug. So it was a bit like, you know, reaching into the past and, and feeling kinship with her there uh, just to wrestle with that same bug. Did um, a lot of people talk about kind of Ada Lovelace and the first computer program, but did she write others or was this the only one? That is a great question. I do not know of any other yeah. programs that she wrote. I think this was just the the one. I mean, she may have written others in her own time. I think this was the only one that was published. I also see in the post, it's a, quite a few people have have translated this into modern programming languages. And I guess the the important question there, did, uh, did people make the first pull request? Have they fixed the bug or do they leave it in in tribute? Ah, yes, that's a great question. I think <laughs> I've seen one other Python translation of that program. And I think in that program, there's maybe a comment in the source file pointing out that this is an error, but you know, in, in the code itself, the error has been fixed. Yeah. But it's also not obvious that the bug is really, it could easily have been a misprint, right? So somebody had to, True. some poor person had to typeset that page for the table. And I'm sure that you know person as they're pulling together the, the type had no idea what on earth they were trying to print and had never seen anything like that before. So I think it's entirely possible that that person just got these two variables mixed up. And it, the variables have, they're all named, you know, V1, V2, V3, for example. And so in this case, <laughs> the error was that you had a V5 instead of a V4. So it's an extremely small error. Like coding, coding, coding standards for modern programming languages would have a major headache with that these days. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I'm, I'm glad we've moved beyond that. <laughs> Just one final question on the Lovelace story. Um, how? So you said it was basically a, a, a table, but I, I mean, maybe this is sort of naive. Just putting a, a modern interpretation on it. But how did how did one run it? In quote marks. Well, that was all a little bit uh, unspecified. So. There was a plan to build this machine. So Babbage had Charles Babbage, the 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 British scientist that Ada Lovelace was working with. He had already built this difference engine, which was a relatively simple machine that could be used to automate the production of log tables. Mm. And so he had this grander vision to move on and build this other machine called an analytical machine, which was really, I mean, he he imagined a general purpose computer. And so this analytical machine was supposed to be a general general purpose computer, and, and they thought that they would be able to program it using punched cards. So that was the plan. They were, you know, maybe 100 years too early. That was indeed what ended up happening, but mm. a long time later. Uh, but that was their plan, that they would build this machine and program it using punched cards. But they never got, the machine was never built. Uh, there were some drawings of it, but I don't think they ever got far enough to say, you know, here is the exact sequence of holes you would have to punch in order to, begin this particular instruction. So they never got that far. So there was no opportunity for Ada Lovelace to say, okay, now that we've got this table, we're going to translate it into holes on punched cards. Um, however, 
they didn't, they knew that there would be certain instructions that the computer would be capable of. And so in this table, she has these different operations. Most of it is, you know, addition and subtraction and moving one variable to another place. And so those, 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 that was sort of the basic instructions out of the computer. And even though they didn't have it um, down to an exact mechanical level, uh, she knew what the computer would be capable of, and so she designed the program using that instruction set. And have you, uh, have you, or will you cover Babbage as well? That's a good question. I feel like I've covered. I don't know if there's. Yeah, I think I've covered a lot. I think the, yeah. the real interesting thing about Charles Babbage, so he he has this difference engine, and and mm. he never. You know, the funny thing about the difference engine is that it was never really built in full, although they did have working parts of it. And so I think the most interesting thing about Babbage is that he had this working part of the difference engine. And, and we're talking about it maybe it's sort of like a suitcase sized working demonstration of this one part of a machine. And maybe the most interesting story about him is that he has this demo piece and he decides the best use for it is he brings it along to all these, you know, fancy parties and uses it to impress people. <laughs> You know, it's shows not uncommon. To... I mean, the, the story of the mechanical Turk is the same. People right. took it to parties to show off. That was basically what people used to do in Victorian England. <laughs> right. And uh, maybe it should make a comeback. I'm sure it made for very exciting parties. But I think it's it's so interesting that he, you know, took it around and, and showed it off to people and, you know, showed it to Ada Lovelace, who was, you know, a very young woman at the time that they first met. So um, I think that's an interesting story about him. But I think I've covered a lot of his life in, in that Ada Lovelace piece. I talked about Ada Lovelace. But I also, I've got a whole section in there on, on Babbage. So. What is the most important story so far that you haven't covered yet that you want to? I'd love to run with that theme that I've discovered a bit in a lot of my articles. I mean, I never intended to start out writing about this, but I've, I've realized over time that a lot of my articles are about this tension between open source development that involves a lot of standards agreed upon by everybody involved uh, and proprietary development by you know large corporations that are trying to mm. monopolize a platform. Um, so I think there's a very interesting political story there, and it seems to come up all over the place. Maybe maybe this is just because I'm so preoccupied by it that it keeps coming up. But I really think there are all these uh, interesting historical stories that touch on it a little bit. So I'd love to keep writing about articles uh, about topics in that vein. And the Friend of a Friend project, which is something I'd like to write about at some point, I first heard of it when I was writing about the semantic web. Mm. And it was one of those semantic web technologies that never really took off. But it was a way, I think, I mean, I should really go back and do some more research. But I think the idea was it was just a way for you to advertise who you are mm. and who your friends are on your own website. Sounding very familiar. Yeah. Sounds extremely, <laughs> extremely familiar. Um, and I mean, I really don't know a huge amount more than that. But I think a lot of, a lot of the features it was designed to support, it, it was really just a way of keeping in touch with people and spreading contact information. And um, there was this notion of, you know, a friend link. So you, you get this nascent idea of the, the social graph. And I think it's so interesting because whereas some of the semantic, I mean, we were talking earlier about how, how do you make some of these stories relatable to people who are not engineers? I think the semantic web stories is very interesting if you're an engineer, but to the average person, I mean, the semantic web never got far enough to make an impact on the public at large, and most people would never have heard of these technologies. But I think the friend of a friend project is extremely interesting because 
it's an example of something. I mean, it was almost maybe going too far to say it was an alternative Facebook, but it was another path that we could have gone down. Um, and it would have been so different because you would have decided, I mean, you would have advertised to the world who your friends are on your own website. So you would have had control over that information. You could decide to share it with whoever you wanted to. Um, and who knows? I mean, maybe other technologies could have built on top of that. So, I mean, one reason that Twitter took over from RSS, for example, seems to be that you had an opportunity on Twitter to follow people that you knew. So there's this whole social graph built on top of just the idea of a feed of information. And then that was done by Twitter. And, you know, Twitter now is this walled garden controlled by a corporation. Imagine if we had had friend of a friend and RSS, and maybe those two things could have come together and you could have had a lot of the functionality of Twitter, but in this open, uh, decentralized way. So I think I love to write about friend of a friend because I think it's a, an interesting story about, you know, what could have been. And these are very relevant stories right now. I mean, on the open source versus proprietary, we currently have a lot of um, disagreements in the open source community and what especially uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, are doing to their business models, um, which is forcing a lot of open source companies to take some drastic steps, which is then upsetting the rest of the open source movement. And these are not new either. These stories are not new. We've had many examples in history like uh, Java and uh, Sun and Oracle and <laughs> all these companies in the past. We have a company like Microsoft who, I can't remember the exact quote, but once described Linux as a cancer, now <laughs> being one of the major contributors to Linux. <laughs> um, and of course, yeah, the, the whole aspect of um, walled garden networks and of course the ever-present problem with uh, open source or self-hosted options being that whilst they are um, ethically and kind of ownership-wise better, they're not always the most usable option, and that's often their big stumbling block. Um, yeah. And thus we end up in the walled gardens because it is more convenient. Um, and how do we stop having that problem, I suppose? But that's a, that's a much bigger separate conversation, I think. <laughs> I know you've been um, studying recently, and the last post was a month or two ago. So... What, what are you working on right now, or is that going to be the next one? Yeah, thanks for calling me out on that because I've been oh, really? <laughs> Definitely been behind. Uh, I'd, I would love to write about the BBC Micro, so that's my next okay. step. And there's this amazing archive that the BBC has put up. So along with the Micro, I mean, they, they put out the computer, but then they also put out these uh, television series, which was you know, teaching people about how to use uh, computers. And I think there's this big worry that the, the UK would fall behind if, if the BBC didn't do something like this. So I, I would love to write about um, that television program and what it would have been like for, you know, people in the 80s to look ahead and think, you know, what what is the computer going to do for our society? And of course, they released a new one a couple of years ago, which I don't think set the world on fire, but um, they did it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Uh, I guess that place was already replaced for them with uh, Raspberry Pis and the sort of microcomputers and and uh, things like Scratch and stuff. I mean, I guess the the need was being filled already. Um, yeah, I think there so, are an amazing yeah. number of ways to yeah. to learn about this stuff now. So if I had to, if I had to decide on three or four lessons I've learned uh, while writing my blog, I'd say. The first one is I've always been surprised. It always seems like it could have gone the other way. And I think it's very easy to 
to sit at a particular point in time and look at the past and just assume that everything was heading inevitably to where you are. Um, but I think particularly when, I, when I've written about things like the creation of the web or the RSS standard, I mean, there are just so many different ways that it could have gone. There are so many different people who are around who could have put their own imprint on it. And it always seems to be just a combination of uh, uh, you know, luck and, and being at the right place at the right time. So I think it's important to remember that it could have gone uh, in any direction. It was not inevitable. I'd say the second lesson that I've learned is about women in computing. I wrote an article about what it was like to get a Commodore 64. So that was a fun little article. I, I hadn't done that before, but I wrote that in um, sort of a, a second person style. So I, I tried to put the reader in, in, in the place of you know a, a 16 or you know 14 year old boy getting the Commodore 64 for the first time. And there's this whole bit where, you know, the boy sets it up with his father. And I worried a little bit that that was quite gendered. You know, why is it a boy? Why is it a boy and his father? But I think the reality is that that's just what it was. I mean, in the 80s, suddenly computers became primarily associated with video games. There wasn't a whole lot else that they could do. The personal computer was really a video game machine. And, and that got uh, very gendered very quickly. So in the 80s, computers became for men. But that wasn't the case before that. I mean, there are so many women who worked in computing. So many of the first programmers worked. Uh, some of the first programmers were women because it was seen as a menial thing. So women, you know, computing being more of a, a men's field than a women's field, that that is a relatively recent thing. Uh, while writing that piece, I also learned that this might, this would be my third point. The, the Commodore 64 was a relatively simple machine and it came with this manual and the manual was, you know, a relatively thick manual, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite a book, but that was all you needed to know to operate the machine. I mean, you could read the manual cover to cover and you would really understand everything about the machine. Um, and you had, you know, it, was, it all was based on BASIC, and you had these poke and P constructions in BASIC, which allowed you to manipulate individual bits of memory. Um, and that gave you huge control, and you could see how the whole machine worked. Whereas I think today, computers are absurdly complicated, and almost nobody understands how every single component of a computer works. So that's a very interesting historical thing that, you know, 34 years ago, it might even have been easier to understand computing than today. And then I think the last lesson I've learned, this is my fourth lesson. And I think I've, I've alluded to this several times already throughout our conversation, but I think people underrate how useful histor history is, learning history as a way of understanding things. So yep. particularly if you're working professionally as a software engineer, so much of your job is just trying to understand all these different complex systems. <laughs> and you could go out there and you could read the specification. You could go out there, you could read you know, the, the documentation that comes with that, whatever framework you're using. And that'll get you some of the way there. But I think what people don't usually do and what they should probably do more of is just go look at the history of the technology because I think that will, understanding, you know, what was the motivating problem and why was this the solution? I think that really helps you understand why something is the way it is. And, and you can formulate expectations about, you know, if you don't know something, maybe you can expect that it'll work in a particular way because you understand the history and the motivation. So I think that's a really useful tool that mm -hmm. people should use. Yep. I'd go along with pretty much all of those. I think 
the the one about women getting excluded is it, it's not unique to the computing industry, and um, I, I don't really know why it happened. Um, I'm probably I'm sure someone has has written something around it. Uh, I guess maybe it's the mainstream adoption of computers is it sort of coincides with that. So I don't know if that was related, um, but it's a great shame. Yeah, and I, I think that is now changing. But I, I do I think there are crazy statistics to show there are now less women in computing than there were even 20 years ago which it's it's kind of crazy and to show that the some 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 aspects not all of the male side of computing can be so toxic that it puts these people off but anyway that's that is definitely another conversation and I don't think we are necessarily the two to have it so <laughs> um it, it, it is pretty pretty damning um the the intimidating one I also find quite fascinating. Um, there was a, a great talk at a there's a there's a there's a games meetup here, a regular games meetup here in Berlin um, called Talk and Play, where they have some great talks. They're not they're not like programming talks. They're kind of more around culture. And there was a a talk from these two French people who uh, kickstarted uh, making an original NES game on uh, 40k in in 40k of memory, which you know, to a modern games programmer is like, yeah, is, is absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and how they did it. And, um, and it was such a fascinating talk and the tricks they had to do and the things they had to relearn because, you know, most programmers these days use things like unity where 40 kilobytes is probably one arm of a, of a, of a sprite, you know? <laughs> so, um, oh, you mean the game engine? Yeah. 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 And, and also things like, um, I was reinvestigating the old, um, Amiga demo scene where people used to make these discs, floppy discs of, uh, just music and, and graphics basically. And those things I think were programmed in assembly and C because the performance they had to get out of them at that time to fit on a floppy disc yeah, uh, you had to really get right down into the the nuts and bolts, um, and yeah, I learned assembly for one module in my computer science course, and I it was eye opening. It's like learning Latin when you learn European languages, which I also did in my school because I went to a very old fashioned school. Uh, I did Latin in school also. It was a lot yeah, of fun. <laughs> yeah, and it was like that with assembly, like you're writing four pages of code to add two numbers together. It yeah. makes you appreciate something like Ruby far more, you know, yeah. <laughs> because you suddenly realize what on earth is the complexity going under the hood. And I think sometimes just appreciating that is helpful. Um, yeah. So, so my, my three points are pretty similar to yours in, in, in many ways. And actually one thing I completely forgot to mention at the beginning of this conversation is one of the other reasons that um, I was interested in speaking to you, one of the reasons why I ended up learning so much, especially about 80s computing history, was a couple of years ago I started working on a board game where I wanted it to be about running a computer company in the 80s. And I, I, got, stuck on me- I got stuck on mechanics very quickly um, but in the, in the interim, I did a lot of research. <laughs> so learned a lot of obscure stories and less obscure stories. Um, so I guess some of my points are based on that research, plus the kind of stuff I do as a day job, which is basically interfacing with engineers to try and explain what they do to the rest of the world, which uh, opens you up to a lot of um, experiences. Uh, that sounds like a challenge, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. Yeah. <laughs> The first one would be short-term and current success doesn't always equal long-term success. I mean, a classic example of this right now is someone like Apple, incredibly successful at the moment, but 
in the mid 90s, the company nearly went bankrupt. Um, and we already talked about companies like Sinclair earlier, you know, just because you're successful now doesn't mean you will be in the future. And maybe your business model will be completely different. <laughs> so and uh, that's something you maybe just have to go with sometimes. Obviously, I have to throw this one in to, to fit in with the name of the show, but do not underestimate the amateur, which I sort of mean here in terms of open source, I guess. Uh, so many programs and components of programs we now use have basically been built by people in their spare time, which is quite fascinating. And sometimes these people are lucky enough, or if they want to be, get picked up by bigger companies and get a proper job in quote marks, maybe working on their project, maybe on something close to their project, but quite often not. Um, so, I think there are a lot of examples out there as well yeah, of yeah. the open source version of something out competing yep. the proprietary version. Yep. So, I mean, even when there's direct competition, often the open source version will come out ahead. And I think if you look at the history of, of RSS, I think that's particularly illustrative here because you have this amateur, Dave Weiner, who comes out with his version of RSS. And then there's Netscape that comes out with its version of RSS. Um, and arguably, I mean, Weiner's version is the one that kind of saw a lot of success. There's a lot of back and forth there, but um, he was the one who decided to use it for podcasting. So, yeah, I think here open source often does better. The amateur often, well, if they're enthusiastic, they win out in the end. <laughs> yeah, certainly that. <laughs> and... I may even contradict myself slightly with my last one, and this is something I I kind of say a lot, and it's sometimes controversial, and I sometimes am told I'm wrong, and I kind of agree with it when I'm told I'm wrong, so it's a bit of an odd one to say. But um, firstly, maybe it's kind of point three and a half. Maybe this is sort of a sub-point of the same point. Firstly, especially at the moment with a lot of uh, artificial intelligence systems and automated systems, I would always say... Um, just because you can build something, don't. <laughs> don't you'd always have to. Uh, it may not always be the best option. Um, history, again, is littered with examples of engineers having their work abused by others. Uh, it's, again, part of a, a wider... We're getting a little bit more serious and dark here, maybe. But, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes if, if you think this could be used for bad... Maybe just don't don't build it or keep it to yourself. <laughs> I'm not sure. Right. Uh, and, and the second one, I guess, is reinventing the wheel a lot. And so where I've got contradicted on this is where sometimes I'll say, why are there five libraries that do this exact same thing? Why don't they all get together and collaborate? And then people say to me, well, you know, sometimes you need competition and competition is good. And even though they're 95% the same, et cetera, it's not a bad thing per se. So I sort of... I, I flip backwards and forwards on, on, on that point. But I think more specifically, and this especially feeds into our topic, has been um, coming back to understanding the, some of the history behind, uh, behind things. Like, for example, a lot of uh, coding schools now teach very practical skills, but they miss out a lot of um, theory, things like uh, common patterns for algorithms and things like that. And I've heard a lot of people complaining about uh, engineers coming from these schools because they will come in and propose something as a revolutionary new idea. And people say, well, that, that's an idea that's existed for 20 years. Um, you know, <laughs> So I think it's, it's, it's sometimes, I guess, just doing a bit more research before you build and just understanding that maybe it existed before, maybe it got abandoned before for a reason. Um, 
don't be afraid to talk to people more experienced than you. Sometimes they, you know, may be annoying and, and be sticklers for things, but sometimes they may also have advice to give you so uh, teams don't spend too much time kind of recreating things that actually already existed. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I've gone broader than you, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, right. Great point, though. I think it ties into to my thing about knowing the history of computing and how that can be useful. I think it's just software engineers as, as professionals, I mean, they just, there is really very little institutional memory. You know, people, if, if some technical idea has been discarded, then I think people tend to think, well, it was discarded, so we don't need to learn about it. Um, but actually, you know, it's very useful to learn why it was discarded. Um, so that would be my appeal too for, for people just to spend more time learning about the history of computing. One of the great places for learning that history will be your blog. We, we mentioned what it's called. Maybe it wasn't entirely obvious of the URL. So the URL is 2bithistory, uh, 2 as in spelt out, T-W-O-B-I-T, history.org. Um, I think you have a slight... Uh, hexadecimal joke on the website i'm not sure yeah, that's right a, a, a slight joke that's that's my style of humor i go for the slight jokes <laughs> I, I think it's hexadecimal i'm not 100 sure uh, but uh, but um anyway but apart from uh two-bit history and i guess the accompanied uh two-bit history twitter account um if there's anything, any other ways that people can um, find out some of the other things you do, if you want to share them, what are, what are some of those? Well, sure. I mean, I'm currently in graduate school, and at some point I'd like to be employed again. So if you're interested in <laughs> employing me and discovering all my employable <laughs> skills, of which, of course, there are many, um, you should check out my personal website, uh, and that's Sinclair Tarje, all one word. Com. And of course, if you need an employee who has all that historical knowledge, then I think you're the person. So, <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> you have been listening to me, Christian Chiller, speaking with Sinclair Target of 2-Bit History, where we discuss computer history, the untold stories, the surprising stories, the, the maybe not so surprising stories behind the history of the computers we all now use no, maybe love. Depends who you are, I suppose. I hope you were enthusiastic about knowing more about computer history, about digging more behind the tools and uh, applications and operating systems and devices that you probably use every day and are more curious about finding out about how they got to how they are now. For more information on The Enthusiastic Amateur, go to theenthusiasticamateur.com. You can find their show notes and you can also apply to be a guest on a future episode. No sales pitches, no marketing spiels, but if you are interested in what you do and uh, feel like you have something to add, I'd love to hear from you. So until next time, stay curious, stay passionate, stay enthusiastic. Music.